Dialogic Disciple is an invitation to explore discipleship in dialogue with the world as disciples of the Word. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Dialogic Disciple podcast. My name is James Johnson and I am here with my co-host... Elizabeth Shaby. Elizabeth, we have a very special guest in the studio today. Dr. Bill Birch, senior pastor at Northside Church. I mean, they're all special, but Bill, I mean, come on. <laughs> Bill, how Specialist. are you doing today? <laughs> <laughs> Appreciate being invited to come back. Absolutely. We love having you here. Um, today we're going to spend some time talking about maybe one of the more disturbing stories in Scripture. Uh, maybe one of the most misunderstood stories in Scripture, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, as we talk about, as we continue our series on the redemption of Babel and the cities that we build rather than the gardens that we should be planting. Um, but before we do that, uh, it's getting warm outside. The spring weather is coming. And for me, that always is a little bit of chaos with allergies and whatnot. Uh, how are you guys? How's your warm weather, spring weather situation starting out so far this March? Oh, I couldn't be happier. I sit outside now on my patio and do homework, and it makes me think everything's going to be okay. (laughs) (laughs) I wasn't quite done with winter, and I guess we'll probably Uh, get another one, the Blackberry winter here in Georgia. Sure. Just feels early this year. Yeah. It does seem like we had a pretty mild winter, too. Like, it... it, Yeah, other than that killer week around Christmas. But yes, they they say it's been one of the mildest winters ever. It wasn't like, yeah, it wasn't very long, you know. Yeah. Uh, It was pretty warm in general. I'm very excited. My fig tree seems to have survived the winter, which I did not think it was going to. Oh, fantastic. So I saw a little tiny green bud on his very dead looking branches uh, the other day. So that's my favorite part of this season is looking around in the yard and seeing everything that's coming back and what survived. And yeah. I have, what I'm pretty sure is a squash vine that I bought way too late in the season, but it was on clearance. And I was like, oh, you're coming home with me. Come on. And I thought for sure he was dead, but he's got a little tiny green on him. So I didn't. At least I'm pretty sure that's what that was. But could so, we, could we spend exciting. some time? Why in Elizabeth's horticultural world, all the plants are he masculine? She, oh, mm. that's mm. funny. Mm. <laughs> uh, Elizabeth, your goal, I think, if you remember right, is to have a uh, a biblical garden. At some that's point, the goal. Right? I want I want every plant that is mentioned in the Bible that I can at least get to grow in you know, wherever I am. So fig tree, I've got um, an olive tree. He's, he's survived. He, there we go again. Mm-hmm. She survived. <laughs> I don't know why I do that. <laughs> let's, let's use um, inclusive language for our garden. We're yes. starting a counseling center here. They might be able to help you look at <laughs> oh, that. No, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> well, so let's, let's jump in then to, um, our first story of the day, uh, and, and the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Let me let me just let's just start with an open conversation about um, when was the last time you read this story before this before this Lent, right? When was the first time last time you read this story? Because this is one of those stories that I think we all think we know, but that mm-hmm. we don't ever go back and read. You know, a lot of these stories, in fact, that we've been covering over this course of this Lent devotional series, has been stories that you know, like Adam and Eve and the Garden of Eden. Like we know it so well, we don't ever go back to it. Sodom yeah. and Gomorrah is one of those stories that. Either we think we know well enough that we don't have to go back, or it's just such a weird and disturbing story that we don't go back. Um, yeah. So when was the last time you guys even looked at this story? It's been several years for me. Yeah. It's not just Sodom and Gomorrah. It's the extended story of what happens with Lot afterwards. It gets yeah. really 
really ugly. Yeah. It's one of those things you'd like to just skip over and keep going. Uh Uh-huh. Right, yeah. Have you ever preached on this story? You know, in 40 years, I'm not sure I ever quite got around to it. (laughs) Oh, that would be fantastic. That would be... Yes, let me put that on the calendar. I know we are not electionary people, but do you know if it's in the lectionary at all? I'm sure it's not. I do not know. I I don't think it is. Do you not? Okay, I I don't know. I don't think it is. Um, It might be one of the ones that gets left out. Uh, there's a just there's a lot of it's there, but I, I'm not sure. I honestly don't know. But uh, I I don't remember encountering it in the lectionary. My Hebrew Bible professor told us the other day that um, the only part of Lamentations that's in the lectionary is like this one little one little couplet or something, and it's a very not some it's a particular verse that's not um, indicative of the rest of the book, and that shocked me. I guess I've never. I mean, even growing up Episcopalian, I didn't. It didn't occur to me that. We've casually left things out of the lectionary, and so it wouldn't surprise me if this one wasn't in there. Even a three-year cycle that's intended to cover the whole biblical yeah. witness leaves out a lot yeah. of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's uh, that's fascinating. Though. Right? I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. yeah. Um. So it, it's been a while since we looked at this story. I will say, uh, Bill, you said that you probably haven't preached on this uh, in in forty years of preaching. <laughs> Um, I don't think I, I taught a Sunday school lesson on this, and we covered it in Sunday school on Sunday, and just reading the story out loud uh, made me feel really uncomfortable. <laughs> so yeah. I definitely got the little, um, and then we did it in Bible study yesterday, and um, uh, I'm spending the entire week in this text, uh, and, and it's it's one of those that really, really gets to you. Um, it's one of those stories where you read it and then you ask the question, like, well, why is this even in the Bible? Like, what mm-hmm. is this story trying to teach us? Um, what are some of you guys' first impressions as far as, like, what, what is this story about, Elizabeth? Come on, You're Bill. the new biblical scholar <laughs> in the group. <laughs> no. Well, I've read the devotional, so I, I know the answer to the well, question. Well, apart so. from the devotional, though, because <laughs> there's many different ways to uh, obviously read this. I have a more general observation. It, yeah. it, it has intrigued me looking at the devotional and doing some additional reading in preparation for today. I do think there's a tension here in the story. And my observation is this. People, and I hate to use labels, but people who are relatively conservative, mm-hmm. I think collapse attention to the side of talking about sexual immorality. Yeah. yeah. And I think those who are more progressive tend to collapse the side towards hospitality. Yeah, yeah. And how do you hold that tension? Because I did do some extra reading because Ezekiel obviously reinforces the hospitality side of the story where you turn to Jude, Mm -hmm. it's much more on the sexual immorality side of it. And so how do you hold that tension that it's not either or, but both? But both and, and, yeah. Mm. No, I think that's good. I think think as a general practice, we need to learn to do that more with more scripture stories, right? Because one of the great things about the Holy Spirit speaking through the Bible and and why we call it the Word of God in the first place, the occasion for the Word to speak is is that it can mean, I don't want to say it can mean multiple different things, but it, it, it speaks differently to each generation and to each individual even from time to time um, in different ways. And so that tension uh, is an important part of of realizing that you can't really reduce the Word of God to like one little nugget of information, right? I, I tend to think that the tension piece is is really important too, Bill. And and I see what I see going on in this story is is uh, a, two big exaggerations, right? So what we have, I think, is an exaggeration of wickedness that's coming out of um, out of the people of Sodom, the men of Sodom in particular, who are um, overcome 
with this this uh, hostility toward Lot and his guests that have come into the come into his home under his protection. Uh, and that hostility is, is exaggerated to the point where they're beating on the door. They want to drag this guy out. And basically, they want to rape him and probably kill him, right? Kill these guys. Um, and then you have an exaggeration of hospitality on the other side, where Lot is willing to give up his daughters. Yeah, what's in up order, with that? I know, right? <laughs> Ugh, that, is, that, that is uh, a part of the story that sometimes we forget about because we get, we get sidetracked by the other stuff. But Lot mm-hmm. is willing to literally give up his daughters rather than these two strangers that he's invited into his home. Um, and that's an exaggeration. I think they're both exaggerated uh, versions of hospitality and hostility that that are meant to design to to hold that tension between the sexual immorality and the hospitality that's going on there. What is the official classification for this story? Like um, poetry? Yeah, right. Like what? <laughs> like the literary classification? Maybe is the word. <laughs> it's a really weird poem. <laughs> so, a limerick. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, what do you mean? That's a narrative. Is that what you mean? Or well, I don't know. I mean, I think I. And of course, it's all you know based on interpretation. But you know, it's it's easier to hold that tension of exaggeration and see that if you're reading this as almost a parable or oh, you know you. a fable yeah. kind of thing. You know, you talk about the tortoise and the hare a lot. Like we can find truth in that. Yeah. Based on these extremes, right? So do we read it as a you know historical fact, a story? Do we read right. it as a parable? How I don't I don't know if there's an official scholarly word on. Um, what this is, but I just I think that's helpful sometimes yeah. in how to think about something like that. You know, is it a tragedy or is it or is it an extreme, you know, hyperbole that the author is using to try and get this point across? I'm sure, sure you can read it either way. But. Yeah, well, obviously a lot of people read it as just straight history. Yeah, um, but I think it's not really intended to be read that way. In fact, there isn't much straight history in the way that we talk about history today. You know, the way that history is done and written in our context today. There's not much of that in the Bible altogether, right? All of these are stories that are written in order to create faith or to correct uh, faithlessness, you know? Um, And so the story, while based in history, it's definitely more, it's a step, it's more of a step toward history than like the first 11 chapters of Genesis. But is it telling a story that is factually 100% from start to t- from start to end, you know, yeah. uh, historically accurate? I don't think the author of Genesis would have cared about yeah, that sure. as much because that's not what the purpose of the book is. Sure. You say that then, and a lot of people get kind of uncomfortable about something like that. But that's that's how I've been taught. I don't know, Bill. What do you think? <laughs> do you want to dive into that? <laughs> Thank you, Doctor Johnson. <laughs> I think the Israelites, in my opinion, would have heard it as a historical story. Yeah. Yeah. But then out of that drawn the lessons that you were talking about. They were such a narrative people, Mm -hmm. and we are Mm -hmm. too. We just disguise it a little bit better and try to be rational and logical and get things down to points, and the moral of the story is. Mm -hmm. But these were the stories that steeped their faith, and Mm -hmm. some of them are truly ugly. Yeah. Really, really, and this is one of the prime ones. Yeah. Yeah. In some ways, um, I won't say that I like that, but I'll say that it, it, it gives me some comfort um, in how honest Scripture is about human condition, about the human condition, about who we are as, yeah. as sinners and who we are as people who tend toward unfaithfulness and wickedness, maybe more so than we do toward faithfulness and righteousness. Um, and this is certainly one of those stories.
one of the things that I've tried to do um, over the past couple of years is to try to read myself into the villains of the stories, simply because you know I think that's an it's more it's a way to reopen the text to me in a way that you know if I'm very familiar with the text, it's hard sometimes to to hear it speak fresh. And so, you know, read myself as Pharaoh or Egypt rather than as Israel, or read myself as Goliath rather than as David, um, because we always like to read ourselves into the heroes of the story. Of course. And That's this a great is, point. This is a story, it's hard to read myself into any of these characters, to be right. honest, to be, to be just completely honest. Um, you know, what would have to happen in my life in order for me to be a part of this mob? What would have to happen in my life in order for me to be willing to do what Lot did with his daughters, you know? And, and Bill, you alluded to the rest of the story that keeps going. Like, as, as, as we're thinking about what we are supposed to take from this, you know, I, I find myself, I find it very difficult to, to see myself in either one of these places and positions. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, at best, when are you capable, or what, like you're saying, what does it take to be someone who gives up the most precious thing they have to a you know a total to protect a stranger to to be hospitable. Yeah, I mean that's. Mm. It's probably one of the reasons for me. I like the prelude to the story more than the story itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Lots and excuse me, um, Abraham's encounter with yeah. God and the angelic messengers, and then how he plays. Let's make a deal with Let's God. Let's make a deal. Yeah, you're going to destroy the cities, but what if there are fifty oh, yeah. righteous people? <laughs> yeah. All right. We, 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 now we're negotiating. Yeah, right. <laughs> Once you're open to it, right? 40, 35, right. 30, 25, 20, 5, 10. <laughs> you know, how many? How with many? God. Yes. And God. <laughs> what the great part though is God engages yeah, in it in the that story. Is yeah, it is fascinating. It, it reminds me a lot of trying to get uh, Kiefer to eat broccoli. Right. Well, what if I eat five pieces of broccoli? What if I eat four pieces of broccoli? What do I do have to do to get dessert? You know, uh-huh. uh, kind of thing. Yeah. Um, let, let's talk about that for just a second, Bill, because I've always found that that interaction between Abraham and God very interesting in the sense of, is God truly open to negotiation here, do you think? Or or is this a thing where like he knows where it's going to go? Because, you know, a lot of people ask questions like this all the time, like, mm-hmm. Can God, will God really change his mind? Does God really, you know, negotiate? You know, is, is that part of our relationship with God? Well, we see Jesus doing it in the garden, right? I mean, if, if, if possible, let this cup pass for me, right? right Please, right. God, you know, can, can we, it does it three times, right? Yeah, that's true. Please let this not be a thing. And then finally, so I don't know, maybe, maybe part of that is, is a discernment piece. I mean, I certainly wish that God's booming voice would come out of the sky and give me a very clear answer when I try and negotiate, but, um, that doesn't always happen. And so maybe it's having the ears to listen to what God is saying, you know, yeah. does God say, yeah, okay, sure. Fine. I'll save the city. You know, all right, come on, let, bring it back. You know, if, you if we want find, five, you want yeah, 10, fine. Yeah. Or is God saying, hmm, nope, here's your cup. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's difficult. There's a tributary in theology called uh, process theology, mm. which is more of narrative sort of theology that, and you have to balance this, mm-hmm. that God has an endpoint. There's a point omega towards which we're headed, and yet h- how you get there may be through multiple pathways. And so right. God zigs when we zag, and God's working in and through our individual stories for the greater story. I don't know that you negotiate with God, but maybe <laughs> yeah. at the minimum you have a conversation with God and our will somehow 
gets folded into that, yeah. even yeah. as we're praying for God's will to be done. No, yeah. I like that. I, that whole idea that, that God's will uh, will eventually be done and that God does have a, a telos. He has an end point that he's, he's aiming at. But the way that God gets there is in partnership with us, which, of course, is going to take turns that God probably wouldn't have selected himself, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think it, it, we've talked about redemption in this kind of um, – in this kind of way before where, where God, the whole point of redemption is not that God hits the reset button or that everything starts over. The whole point of redemption is that God somehow uses our past and uses the mistakes that we've made and takes what we have made unholy and makes it holy again. So that our past and who we are, the whole of us gets saved. The whole of us gets redeemed. Um, And we see that in stories like for instance, the, the one example I go to is, is David and Bathsheba where, Obviously, what David did with Bathsheba and then by murdering, basically murdering her husband, all of that is terrible. And that's not something that God would lift up and say, this is how you should live, right? But yet, Mm -hmm. out of that relationship, we get Solomon. And then you get the temple. You get these things that come out of that redemption of that relationship, right? And so... That's not the end point was maybe to build a temple, right? In that in that particular mm-hmm. situation, that's not the way God probably would have chose to do it, and it's not the way God wanted to do it. And yet, God is is in partnership with us as He works out this great plan of redemption. Something that I thought about the other day when I was walking, I I'm a huge fan of the Wesley Covenant prayer, um, and so I've been trying to ask, you know, especially in some kind of crossroad places over the last few years. My prayer has been, God, what do you want me to do? What do you need me to do? Tell me what to do and I'll do it. And I do think that's a, you know, it has been a fruitful prayer for me, but it occurred to me that even that is very me centric. You know, what do you want me to do? What do you have for me? What is my life going to look like? And I wondered, well, maybe it's time to change the question. Maybe the question is, Lord, what do you want done? And how can I do it? More of the, you know, I will go wherever it is that you send me. What, what do you have? What's your vision? What is your restoration that needs to happen? And how, um, how can I do that? How yeah. can I make that vision come to life? And some of what we're hinting at is God's will in our lives. How does that work out? And I, there are streams out there of Calvinistic theology that believe, well, God has a step-by-step will uh-huh. for your life. And that, for me, is overwhelming and frightening because if you miss one step, right? <laughs> you know, purpose-driven life or whatever, yeah, whatever other material yeah. you're using out there. But having more of a thought that it is fluid, yeah. that God works through my righteous acts as well as my mistakes, mm-hmm. that, that's a lot more freeing yeah. to me. Yeah. There's a lot more room for grace there, which is not... Grace is good. Surprising. Yeah, grace is good, grace right? Is good, grace yeah. is good, yeah. Right. So this story, I think, I guess this makes me... We're like, doing a lot to ignore Sodom and Gomorrah. We're doing as best we can. Uh, but let, let's, let's return to this story for just a moment. Um, I guess in the way that you... I think uh, the way that you rightly laid it out, Bill, like that there are more conservatively in one way, more progressively the other. I guess I lean more in the progressive uh, sense because I do think this story is about radical hospitality and it's about the hospitality that Lot uh, is willing to show uh, these two strangers because this theme of of taking care of the stranger 
in our midst is is really important. And I don't think Lot has any idea that he's entertaining angels, right? I think they mm. kind of quote that Hebrews passage that you're entertaining angels unaware sometimes. Right. And I think um, that he does he has no idea that these guys are are angels, but they're just strangers. And and it's part of the tradition, part of the culture that he's that he knows is connected to being righteous and following Yahweh. That you take care of. Uh, the stranger in your midst. We find that all throughout the law, and we find that in the prophets, and then even to even into the words of Jesus Christ Himself. I'm I'm curious. Let me throw this out as a question, and you guys can think about it for just a second. Um, what is like? What is the biggest uh, show of radical hospitality or hospitality that you guys have received in your life? This is going to sound like a, a too easy of an answer, but I do mean it. Being shown love and kindness when I've been horribly cranky and terrible. You're welcome. <laughs> Thank you, Bill. Thank you, Bill. But I mean, but, I, yeah. I don't know if that is, I don't know if you want to call that hospitality, but no, that's I def- what it, it definitely is. It felt like a lot. And I think, I think that's the point of hospitality, question mark, is that it's transformative and life-changing, is that even when we don't deserve it, Someone is kind to us yeah. and someone shows us love and it has a way of changing your heart in a way that correction or which, you know, certainly is needed. Cr- criticism, constructive criticism, those things are helpful in certain situations. But the undeserved love has a way of changing us or at least, you know, I've yeah. experienced that in a way that critique does not. For me, I'd cast back to when I was in seminary. I served at Kennesaw Methodist. I was living at home. I don't even ever remember asking my parents about moving back after college. I just moved back <laughs> just to my did. bedroom yeah. to go to seminary. <laughs> Clearly. This is the, this is the goal. <laughs> so that, that would be one form of hospitality. Right. Yeah. Unspoken hospitality, yeah. But the other was there was a, a group at Kennesaw Methodist who adopted me. I was oh, cool. yeah. a kid in my young 20s doing youth ministry, preaching every Sunday night, murdering you know sermons. <laughs> It was, but there there was a Sunday school class which was called the Christian Growth Class, which was a misnomer because <laughs> they weren't growing. But uh, <laughs> there were several couples in there that truly adopted me: Ann yeah. and Wendell, uh, Mickey and Mary, uh, Steve and Brenda, and they included me in everything. I did most of my recreation with these couples. They were pseudo older brothers and sisters slash fathers and mothers yeah. in the faith. That's great. And looking back, I took it for granted at the time. Yeah. It was mm-hmm. just one of the crowd, but they, wherever we went, I never paid for a dinner. I, yeah. And they taught me so much about what hospitality was like. Yeah. Yeah. I hadn't yeah. thought about that and that, that framework, but mm-hmm. that was... Yeah. And I think a lot of times we don't. You know, we just... We do take... We tend to take hospitality for granted sometimes. Even... And it doesn't even have to be a big thing. You know, just yeah. being kind to somebody who's in a bad mood. Right is is not. Um, you are welcome. <laughs> and again, yes. <laughs> oh, Bill. Um, and I've I've definitely been the recipient of that kind of hospitality before, uh, and, and mostly through the church. Like I, I feel like um, you know I I had the same kind of uh, fa- church family growing up when I was a teenager. Pretty difficult teenage years for me, and I had many many people in the family, many families in the family adopt me, many father figures who. Uh, we're willing to take on the the mm-hmm. angsty teenager uh, and and be and be a guide and and be uh, somebody who supported me through through those times. I can think of Northside Church as being a place of great hospitality as well. When I when I started the doctorate program at Emory for the doctorate ministry, um, I had a whole group of of men and other people in the church get together and help to pay for 
the extra costs of of that that it wasn't covered by scholarship uh and i don't know that i would have been able to do it right other than that's a great hospital that's a great act of hospitality as well um and i think I, i just think sometimes sometimes we we do forget to acknowledge those things and if that's what this story is about I guess I guess what I'm trying to get at is maybe we're always on the spectrum of radical hospitality to radical hostility, and uh, uh, most of the time we're somewhere in the middle probably. Yeah. But we want to we want to lean toward the hospitality piece, right? And part of that is recognizing when people have been hospitable to us. Right. Yeah. I'm reminded of I think we talked about this last week. The um, you have to hate your your father and your mother and your brother passage that very difficult line Another that Jesus says yeah. um and this makes me think about that right i mean lot you know offers up his own daughters um and so what does that mean for us to put hospitality kindness love whatever that is protection for a stranger above the things that we value the most right because if that's what god is calling us to do it's going to come at the expense of are we yeah. have the things we love yeah part of what troubles me about the passage and we keep coming back to lot's daughters god bless them <laughs> i wholly endorse what you just said of making self-sacrifice but when the story calls you to sacrifice somebody else, yeah, right, which I realize is the redemptive story of God with Jesus, sure, right. I get right. that, right. yeah, but individually, and I ponder that sometimes in ministry. I, I answered God's call toward a ministry, it's mm-hmm. been my pathway since I was a young teenager. My family has paid a price for that in some ways, yeah, yeah. Now, yeah. there have been some benefits, obviously, yeah. as well, but sure. they have paid a price, and that was not necessarily my bargain to make right right no, they bought a, into it that's a great point that's a really good point do you think there is anything to be said about the fact that uh the daughters don't get sent out right lot offers that and then um i'm gonna look at my verses here but you know the 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 men blind blind the crowd right and go back in the house and it, you know, for better or for worse, to some degree, it works out. I mean, I'm thinking about um, uh, the sacrifice of Isaac, right? Abraham and Isaac, right? Yeah. Abraham, Isaac, right? I don't, so there are a lot of points. I think this goes back to what you were talking about, Bill, with the tension piece, right? You know, there is, like, exactly like you're talking about. I mean, sacrificing another human being, that's not okay, you know? I mean, that's, no, that, that's not good. But, you know, what what can we say about it? with the redemption piece, right? That God does yeah. not actually allow that to happen. Is there solace in that? Does it, you know, I don't know. You can't, I don't know. That's a weird thing to dance around, right? We don't, we can't justify terrible actions. We can't use these stories to do that. Um, I don't know. What do you think? Does that make sense? It does. And I've always wondered what, from Isaac's perspective, you know, out of the, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you don't hear much about Isaac. Right. He's in therapy. Yeah. Is that right? The trauma. <laughs> yeah. Right? Talk the trauma that he yeah. endured because of this, the trauma, the fear that Lot's daughters would carry with them because of this. Oh, absolutely. You know, and just hearing your father say that, you know, I mean, yeah. With the great, yeah. great grandchildren. How, how, let's talk right. about our heritage. Yeah. Right. 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 It's, um, no, that's yeah. that's a fascinating question because I hadn't thought about it like that in the sense that they don't quite get to the point where they're actually offered up. Isaac is another example of that. Um, in that Abraham Isaac story, Abraham 
is willing to sacrifice Isaac, uh, and not, and then obviously it doesn't have to. But then Abraham doesn't talk to God for the rest of Abraham's story in Genesis. Mm-hmm. Like there's no more of those intimate conversations, no more negotiations, no more of anything like that. Yeah, that would damage a relationship, uh, yeah, right? A little, you know, and yet, right. and yet, and yet, what you're seeing there is a redemptive. There's like the angels step in before that's necessary, right? And and right. an angel steps in, and yeah. Well, I want to double back for a moment to your comment on the spectrum between hostility and hospitality. I think that's very well put. I was was flashing in my own head driving on the interstates around Atlanta, and in the space of five minutes, I can go from one extreme to the other. Yeah. You know, one moment I'm letting somebody in and smiling and going, yeah, I'm being a really great Christian. The next minute I'm laying down on the horn and gesturing and like, (laughs) right. Yeah. Anybody who's going faster than you is a maniac. Anybody who's going slower is an idiot. Right. Yeah. That's exactly right. Traffic's Uh, a great example. And traffic traffic is always a great example here, particularly here in Atlanta. Yeah. That was the question we asked yesterday is the things how how are you hospitable when you're anonymous right and traffic is a great example right anonymity gives you all sorts of freedom it does and i think about uh, the traffic one for me is when i leave this building and I am more likely to do something terrible road-wise the farther away I get from this building because <laughs> oh, it's like, well, I don't know. I mean, you know, I don't know what, what kind of car everyone on staff drives. Like, it could be Ken behind me. It could be you behind me, Bill. And so, you know, I'm not going to let you in. No problem. You know, but, eh, over in Smyrna now, it's fine. I don't know anybody over there. Right. It could be terrible. <laughs> I'm reminded that occasionally when I get a voicemail because my message identifies myself as the pastor at Northside Church, which oh, I probably oh, need yeah. to change. But if I've had an interaction or two with somebody, it's always a check and balance on me to yeah. go, okay, they, they left a voicemail. They know I'm a pastor. Therefore, yeah. right. Yeah, okay, yeah. I'll be nice. Yeah. So I think um, a good way to kind of uh, wrap this conversation up is is to ask um, how how we can help one another or help ourselves to to lean more into the radical hospitality piece, right? Yeah. And I think one of the ways that we can do that is is given to us in Matthew twenty five, which is another passage that we're going to be looking at this week um, as we talk about this topic. And it's the famous story of Jesus separating the sheep from the goats or the King separating the sheep from the goats when he returns and to the people on his right, you know, he sends the sheep and then, and, and to his left, he sends the goats and to the people on his right, he says, um, I just want to read this real quick. He says, uh, you know, come you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat, and I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you cloaked me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. And he says, and all of these folks, um, all of these folks who he says this to, like, when did we ever see you do this, Jesus? Like, when did we ever see you in these situations? And he says, anytime you do this for the least of my brothers or sisters, you do this for me. But to those on his left, he says, you know, you didn't do this for the least of me. So one of the things that Jesus is is saying here, I think, is that when we look at other people, particularly those in need, we should identify those people with Jesus. And this is a way that helps us be, to be motivated, right? To do hospitable things that we're supposed to be doing. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, that in itself is a radical thought. It's a it's a radical way of seeing the world, a radical way of thinking is to put on that lens and not see Bill, right? Not see James sitting in front of me. Like, 
what does it mean? This is, this is Jesus. Like you are a child of God sitting in front of me and no matter how much you frustrate me or irritate me, that's at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. You know, you're, you're a child of God and my call, my radical call is to treat you as if you were Jesus sitting in front of me. Yeah. Somebody in my Bible study yesterday said it beautifully, uh, do unto others as you would do unto Jesus, right? Yeah. Which I think might be, maybe is a, is a good way to think about it. How do we, how do we see others as Jesus Christ and what kind of impact does that have or motivation does that give us? There was a story I used years ago in a sermon and I'm trying to remember the, the details. There was an accident out west, a car accident, and this person just almost appears out of nowhere, helps the person, and then they don't see him again. Yeah. And so there was all this news coverage about, oh, this was some sort of angelic messenger or something. It turned out later it was a Roman Catholic priest who was going by and saw it, and he really read the story and identified himself to the person. And it was interesting because there was almost a letdown that this was not a divine visitation, but it was just a human who happened to stop. And in the sermon, the the punchline of the illustration was, which was the greatest miracle? Yeah. That it was an angel sent by God that helped for a moment and it disappeared, or that a person saw the need, stopped, and the Christian faith helped. And Yeah. I'll dig up the details on that. You know, I feel... It was a powerful story for me. Yeah. There's all kinds of, like, stories. Like, something that NPR is doing right now is they're doing these little uh, vignettes... Um, where they're talking about it's kind of almost like moments of radical hospitality or moments of kindness is really what I think how they're they're talking about it. There was one last week, uh, and these are just little short stories that they're they're throwing out. But uh, there was a story last week about this woman who was in the telephone booth. She was in a subway, I think, in New York, and she was getting off the phone with her husband. And as right as she was getting off the phone, a bunch of men started to surround the telephone booth and they were like jostling it and they were like, they were, you know, accosting her and she was terrified. She didn't know what was going to happen. And all of a sudden she hears this loud, booming voice like, what are you doing? I told you, you don't have time for a phone call. Let's go. And this big guy just comes in, opens the door, grabs her by the arm and starts to pull her away through the crowd, yelling at her the whole time. Like, you know, we don't have time for this. We're going to miss our train. And he put her on the train and then he disappeared. And she never saw oh, him wow. again, but it was just like a moment where he stepped in to whatever was going to happen. Yeah. But it's like a moment where you're like, and she never, she never figured out who it was. Like there's yeah. no, there's no um, identification there, but that's like one of those moments where that is a moment of hospitality, right? I mean, oh, that yeah. is a moment uh, that <laughs> radically changed the direction of that woman's life probably. Um, and they're, they're, they're telling all of these stories uh, throughout the, the week here on, on NPR, um, which I just happened to hear on my way home. Um, but those little moments, those mm-hmm. little moments of kindness and hospitality that can have radical, radical impact and effect on somebody's life. Yeah. And I think it's stopping, right? I mean, that man, whoever he was, could have just gotten on the train and kept moving. You know, he had a choice in that moment. He could have not gone into the situation because, you know, whatever. It's scary. It's a lot. Yeah. You don't want to deal with it. You've got something else to do. But he chose to step in where he could help. And take time out of his day and take the courage to do that thing, to yeah. help this human being out. Um, we talked about Isaiah 58 this week, and the last section of it is about Sabbath specifically, but um, it's honoring what the Lord has asked. And the last part says, um, you know, if you honor the Sabbath by not going your own way and not doing as you please or speaking idle words, then you will find your joy in the Lord. 
And I think that that speaks a lot to what we're talking about, right? It's about what the Lord has asked you to do. And that's, that's how you're going to find joy. It's not, doesn't actually come in the things that we want to do. And part of that earlier in the, in the passage there, he talks about what is it that, you know, the Lord has asked you to do. What is the fast, right? That God demands. It's, it's the same kinds of things that Jesus talks about feeding the hungry, inviting the stranger in. And I, I think maybe sometimes those things are really big for us to kind of wrap our heads around. And maybe they are asking, maybe we think that it's asking too much. Um, we're not supposed to be Lot in this story. We're, we're supposed to move toward Lot in the story, maybe. <laughs> there you go. So finding a, just a moment of hospitality for somebody else in our life, particularly for a stranger, somebody mm-hmm. we don't know, and we have no expectation of reward yeah. or reciprocation, right? Right. It's a lot. Yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> ah, dum, dum, dum. How long have you been sitting on that one? <laughs> 45 <laughs> minutes. <laughs> uh, well, Bill, thank you so much for being here. Do you have any final words, anything that you want to drop to the people of Northside or listen to our podcast before uh, we wrap up? No, I'll compliment you both on this uh, particular cycle of the devotional. I think it's, for me, and everyone strikes people differently. Yeah. But to me, this has been the most powerful, well-written one that I've seen y'all do. Well, thank you. Oh, wow. That's great. Thank you. Well, that's a good note to leave on then, isn't it? Uh, Elizabeth, thank you for being here as well. Pleasure And as everybody, we'll see you next week.